Welcome to Season 2 of Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. I am one of your hosts, Jeremy Kaur. I am the host of the popular New Books in Medicine podcast, and I have with me my co-host, Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert was the CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He is currently a Forbes contributor, a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, and authored the best-selling book, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. Hello, everyone, and welcome to season two of our monthly podcast series aimed at addressing the failures of the American healthcare system and finding solutions to make it once again the best in the world. In season one, our guests are chosen for their expertise within the current healthcare system. Their bold plans drew thousands of listeners and sparked a national debate. The best and boldest of their ideas but part of the first ever Fixing Healthcare survey, which you can visit on my website, www.robertpearlmd.com. Please go there to check out the survey results and add your comments. We'll be sharing the best listener ideas on air throughout this second season. This year, we'll be welcoming guests who come to us from outside the medical mainstream. We're looking for new, unconventional ideas, and most importantly, Practical, proven strategies for making change happen. Our guest today is Zev Neuwirth. He is the author of the new book, Reframing Healthcare, A Roadmap for Creating Disruptive Change. He is also the host of the hip podcast, Creating a New Healthcare. He currently serves as the Senior Medical Director of Population Health for Atrium Health, formerly Carolina's healthcare system. Zev, I appreciate you being on our show today. In Mistreated, while we think we're getting good healthcare and while we're usually wrong, I focused on the what. What do we need to do to achieve higher quality, easier patient access, and lower costs? And the Fixing Healthcare Season 1, we and our guests focused on what do we need to do to make American healthcare great again. Now in Season 2, we're focusing on the how. And your book, Reframing Healthcare, does a great job of tackling that question. Through a combination of the reframing roadmap with the marketing mindset, you offer seven specific steps to create disruptive change. Today, I want to explore each of them with you, and at the end, look at one specific opportunity. How can we improve primary care? Well, thanks, Robbie, for having me on your podcast. I have to say I'm a big fan of your podcast series, and I also loved your book. In fact, I think I referenced your book in my own book. So uh, really a pleasure and a privilege to be on your program today. Okay, for the listeners, let's get started. Let's take step one of your seven-step process. What do you mean by reorienting, and how would you apply it to the American healthcare system if I can use the word system very loosely. Yeah. So in the book, I spent a bit of time talking about how I came to this understanding that the first step has to be reorientation. So I've, like you, I've been in the healthcare system for many years. I've, I've actually been in healthcare for almost three decades and from the beginning have realized that uh, things had to be much better and you know, I think you and your book explored that in quite in detail. And in my own book, I talk about it in the first chapter. And I think most people accept that the system has to be overhauled. So after 30 years of chasing one 
silver bullet after another, I finally realized that uh, we really needed a different uh, way of thinking about things. And in fact, if you look at innovation in every industry, what you'll see is that transformations and, and major profound innovations actually occur when you bring in ideas from outside of the industry. You can't fix the problem. You really have to reframe it and reorient it. And that's the way innovation and transformation generally work. And so I had been actually observing a major reorientation or reframe um, and had been observing people actually introducing it into healthcare. And that's the marketing mindset that we'll talk about. But that's what the reorient step means. You have a great visual in your book about the U.S. pilots in, I think it was the Korean War. Can you tell the listeners that story? Yeah. So there is a, you know, the whole idea of a roadmap, like why do you need a roadmap? Why do you need steps? Why do you need a guideline? You know, people think of innovation as sort of being just, you know, coming out of thin air or something like that, or coming out of some genius's brain. But the truth is when you're stuck in a situation, that's a dilemma, especially when things are very, very, very volatile and you need to have certain guidelines. And so there was a guideline that was actually created by a, a, a pilot strategist. And uh, what he observed was in the dogfights that the Americans were winning over the Koreans, and yet the, the Koreans were flying uh, fighter jets that were far superior to the American fighter jets. And he couldn't understand how that could be. Their jets were so much better. And what he observed was that the American pilots, the only advantage they had in their jets was that they had a bigger viewing perspective. They actually could see around much better and much easier and much faster. And what he observed them doing was uh, what he documented what is called an OODA loop, O-O-D-A, that would be to observe, orient, decide on a course of action and act, O-O-D-A, observe, orient, decide and act. And what he observed was that the pilots, because they had better viewing, could do these OODA loops much faster than the Korean pilots. And so he actually wrote this down, taught it. It actually became quite well known in the military, and then it became known outside of the military. And in fact, it's it's sort of like a, a general principle that has been adopted by entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley. Uh, they all know about the OODA loop. And it's become sort of an industry a competitive advantage to you know, really observe, orient, decide, and act. And the faster you can do that, go through those loops, and the more of a competitive advantage you have. I mean, the visual of having a, a front of an airplane that is narrow in view versus wide in view to me is just so powerful because we tend to define the challenges of American healthcare in a very narrow way. And I think, as you point out in the book, as we expand that horizon in both directions, left and right, uh, we end up with far more opportunities and better ideas. So how would you apply this specifically to American healthcare? How do we need to reorient it? Well, I, I uh, I think we've been stuck for years again, I would say uh, a couple of things. I would say, first of all, we've been stuck in a era of re-engineering, and that's been going on probably since the 1980s, and very much similar to other industries where we really are focused on just optimizing and improving efficiency and proximal incremental changes. And I think there's a place for that, and that shouldn't go away. We should continue to to improve and, and improve efficiency and optimize processes. But I believe we need to move into an era of reframing. 
And again, in other industries, you see that happening, whether it be in the baking industry, for instance, you, you have to transform. You just, you can't, you can't fix yourself out of a dilemma. And so that's the, the first point. And the second point is really, well, what is the new orientation? What is this new reframe? And I think it, it I think that we have to shift and, and I probably need to explain this, we have to shift from a medical mindset to what I call a marketing mindset. And expand some more, particularly around the uh, uh, focus on the consumer. Yeah, so thanks for asking. The, the medical mindset that we're in is obviously very, very important, very necessary. The, the medical science and technology and the application of that and the advancement of that and all that will continue. But we've really been stuck in terms of thinking about healthcare delivery and thinking about people as patients in what I would say is just an outdated way of delivering uh, healthcare and uh, delivering that serv- those services. And every other industry has a fundamental set of principles that are based on the consumer or the customer. Every other industry, they, it is so basic, it is so fundamental that people don't even think about it. I mean, they have a hard time even explaining it because it is just the way every other industry works. You treat people, you think about your potential customers and your customers in a certain way. There are rules of the road, and those rules guide everything. And of course, over the past few decades, those rules have become uh, technologized, and there's analytics and tremendous sophistication. And what's been, uh, I would say, frustrating to me to observe is that healthcare is still working in a very, very old way of thinking about people and delivering its services. And I think we need to adopt the mindset, the consumerist customer mindset, what I call the marketing mindset, with its principles, with its technology, with its sophistication, in order to advance healthcare delivery. And how, what do you mean by redefine, and how would you apply that to the current challenges of American healthcare. Yeah, so I, I think if you if you take this marketing mindset or this consumerist approach, and I would say this as a starter, I think and unless you actually understand consumerism and marketing and really have studied it and, and have some expertise, chances are you really don't understand it. And, and it probably raises some red flags for a lot of folks thinking, oh my God, what does this mean? We're we're going to treat patients as consumers. Are we going to try to, to sell them things and all that? And that, nothing could be further from the truth. The essence of marketing is all about understanding people, understanding their needs, uh, finding uh, finding customer segments, customizing solutions for those segments, delivering those solutions, and making sure that you're engaging your customers and, and continue to make your solution relevant to them. And if you think about it, that actually isn't all that different from the fundamental principles of medical care. It's really about knowing your patients, understanding your patients, taking the generic training uh, and evidence-based medicine you've been taught and customizing it to that individual in front of you, and then making sure they understand it and they can actually use the wisdom and knowledge and skill that you're bringing to them. So the, the customer mindset, I think, is actually a, and the marketing mindset is a perfect fit for healthcare delivery. And so in that mindset, you have to begin to redefine the problems. And again, the problems become really questions of how well do I know my customers? How well do I understand what they need? Uh, Am I delivering on those needs? How do I know that I'm delivering on those needs? Are they engaged? Those are the type of questions in this new mindset. It's really interesting. 
the in a new mindset and a new reframe you're not getting rid of problems. You're actually substituting a different set of problems for the old problems, but that new set of problems will actually allow you to transform out of the dilemma you're in. So once you've done that, you next talk about rebranding. Again, what does that mean? Translate it for our listeners. and How do we apply it to healthcare? Yeah. So, and again, I, I just want to say that this roadmap is, I didn't make it up. I've literally been observing it for years. And when I observe people who are successfully bringing new ideas into healthcare. This is what I've observed them doing. Rebranding is really important. Branding is all about the value proposition and understanding the value proposition that your customers need and want, and then delivering on it. It actually is probably of all the steps, the most challenging of steps, because it actually requires you to understand the human beings in front of you, their needs, their desires, and how you can meet them. I think, you know, example in the book, I talk about examples of this, like MasterCard. MasterCard has, has a classic, iconic commercial. Probably, Robbie, you, you may remember this one where there's a, a dad, a father and a son going to the son's first baseball game. And they take you, you know, through how they come through the turnstiles and they buy the food and paraphernalia and they sit down and they're talking to each other. And at the end of the commercial, it really hones in on, on the child's face as he's looking up at his dad adoringly. And it says, you know, some things money can't buy, but for everything else, there's MasterCard. Now, the brilliance of that, okay, that was a 30-second commercial. It, it's lasted, I don't know, almost three decades. It has been viewed by literally in every country across the world. It's, it's iconic. And what that took, though, was months and months of intense branding research. They had to figure out what was their value proposition. And what they found, MasterCard, to their surprise, was that people were using the card to buy things to enhance relationships, often very, very similar to, you know, to enhance relationships with their, within their family and extended family and friends. And so they picked up on the true value proposition being all about these relationships. And so the, the transactions, they say, this is really what's important to you. We understand that. We will deliver that value to you. Let us take care of the transactional stuff. And that, I mean, it's just a, just a brilliant example of branding. And I think in healthcare, and, and we can get into this if you'd like, I can show you in primary care in a moment, the difference between a really bad way of branding and what's emerging as a new way of branding healthcare, particularly in the primary care domain. Yeah, absolutely. Once we explain to the listeners what these terms mean, I think translating it into a specific example, and primary care is a great one, will be very educational. Uh, let's talk a little bit though about redesigning. So now we've rebranded. We've been able to um, uh, go through the first three steps and now we need to re redesign. What do you mean by that? And how should we redesign the system? There again, in other industries, there's been a revolution in understanding that you have to be very, very intentional about designing your products and services as much as you can, just about everything. It's not just the product. If you look at things we get now, even the packaging is designed, right? When you take the product out of the package, people literally design those. Of course, Steve Jobs was probably, again, iconic in really uh, showing us how important design is. And there was actually a McKinsey study that re recently showed that organizations, companies that were really intentional about designing their products and services had a much greater uh, return on investment and were doing much better than companies that were not good at designing 
and, and design is, again, it's, it is such a basic fundamental human issue. If something is designed well, whether that's an experience in an amusement park or it's going to a store or anything else for that matter, it engages you. It, you're sucked into it. You want to be part of it. It makes you feel good about yourself. It just changes everything. If a product is designed well, you can use it. You can use it well. On the other hand, if things aren't designed well, they become irrelevant to you. In fact, they become caustic to you. And I would argue that healthcare has paid very, very little attention to human-centered design. And I think it is one of the fundamental flaws of our, of our so-called legacy medical mindset and one of the core, core facets of the marketing mindset that I talk about. No question about it, Zev. I mean, it really has never been uh, designed at all, no less saying redesigning. It's sort of evolved in the 20th century and it's continued to the 21st. Uh, we're in a totally new era with technology, a totally new era in terms of society, and yet we retain the same traditional approaches, only minimally changed, given how fast the external world has evolved. Now, once you've redesigned it, you next talk about results. How do you think about, in healthcare today, reestablishing what the proper results should be? In the book, uh, I, I actually, in one of the chapters, I outline principles of design. And one of the major, major principles of redesign is a focus on results. But again, we have been, and, and again, I don't, I, don't, I don't want this to come across as a criticism or, or, or too much of a criticism, because I think we have been looking at results in terms of quality metrics over the past couple of decades, increasingly so. And it's a great thing. We look at, you know, in surgery, we look at issues like uh, infection, postoperative infections and, and pneumonias and DVTs and things like that, uh, deep venous thrombosis. But we haven't really gotten to the point where we're, we're designing for results that matter to our customers. So if I have a hip replacement, I expect that you'll do it well. And I actually expect that you'll do it flawlessly because, you know, you've been trained and there are, you know, quality and safety metrics. And, you know, it's the same thing as I get into my car. I expect the engine's going to work. I don't expect the engine to fall out of the bottom or to blow up or anything like that. Same thing with healthcare. I just expect it will work. It's all under the hood. But no one's asked me, you know, what are the results that matter to you in this surgery or in this procedure or in this treatment? You know, for me, it might matter that the results that matter might be that, you know, I want to be able to walk my dog or walk with my wife, uh, you know, five blocks or go out and, and walk after dinner without having severe pain in my hip. Or, you know, I want to be able to bend over and tie my shoes without severe pain. Or if I'm an athlete, I want to get back to jogging or going skiing or whatever it is. So that focus on what we now call patient-reported outcomes measures or PROMs is really still very, very fringe in healthcare. And I, I think it's core to every other industry. You know, again, other industries have their own quality and safety metrics, but they also focus on the, on the results and they design for the results that matter to their customers. There's a great expression in business school that what you measure is what you get. And I think what you're saying is that you need to measure some different things than in the past and therefore hopefully be successful and get the results that the customer, the patient, their family all desire. You then move to reorganize. What does it mean and how should we reorganize the American healthcare system? If you go through all these steps, and, and again, there are, there are healthcare organizations out there that are doing innovation 
and some have gotten into human-centered design, uh, and and a few are even getting to the point of looking at results that matter to to patients or customers, although that's still pretty rare. But the thing is this, if you do all those things, what you're going to come across is that the organization as you have it structured is probably not ideal for delivering on the marketing mindset or consumerist approach. And we're seeing this even in healthcare today, this tremendous reorganization going on driven by market forces. And so it is an absolute uh, essential step that when you get to this point that you're going to need to reorganize. Now, let me just say this. There's been a lot of reorganization out there that is what, what I would call just shuffling of the chairs on the deck of the Titanic. You know, to, to reorganize just for reorganization's sake in and of itself is not going to reframe, is not going to be part of this roadmap of transformation. But if you've gone through the other steps and you come to the point where you realize, wow, we need to do things differently. And there are examples of this, I think, uh, happening in healthcare. How about the last of the seven steps to now redirect? What are we redirecting and how should we redirect it in American healthcare? So this is probably the money step. This is the step that uh, I think uh, really determines if you're putting your money where your mouth is. A lot of organizations, a lot of leaders can talk about transformation, but until you start to actually redirect your strategy and redirect the subsequent tactics off of that strategy, and then actually take the resources and redirect them off of those tactics and strategy, until you do that, you're still on the launching pad and you're still in a pilot phase. And I think that, again, I think there's a lot of rhetoric, but when you see where the money is being spent, where you see where the true strategy is, it's often still in very legacy strategic modalities. And so I think this is a, you know, when I look at organizations that are really going through this entire reframe roadmap, they put their money where their mouth is. They not only reorganize, they actually take their strategy, their tactics, and their resources, and they repurpose and redirect them for the transformation. When I speak with boards of directors and consult to organizations, it's fascinating to me how they bring me in because they say they want to transition from a fee-for-service mentality to value. And then when I ask them about all of the ways they generate their current profit, around added volume and more complex procedures. And I even imply they might need to redirect their focus and resources. They say, we can't do it. Is this the really the most difficult step of the entire seven? Yeah, I think you're, yes, I think you nailed it. I think it is. I don't know if I want to say it's the most important, but I, I think it is because, and one of the reasons I say that is because when you have, and what I've observed uh, across the country is, over years, is that you'll have the rhetoric from senior leadership, and it'll be, we're, we're going to go in this direction, we believe in this, but then the middle management and the front line are still, you know, they see what the tactics are, they see what the where the money's going, and it's still in that old way of thinking. And I think what you have is, is you know, sort of a, a lack of integrity. And, and again, I'm not, I'm not criticizing or anything like that, I'm just saying, that's the way it comes across to the front line and middle management. And I think that really leads to a demoralization. And so it is critically important if you're going to say, if you're going to bring someone like you in and heed the, the recommendation, the reorientation, the redefining, the rebranding, the redesigning, the different result, if you're going to take that advice and say, yes, we're going to go with that, then you're going to have to redirect your strategies, tactics, and resources, or just 
say we're going to stay the same, you know, where we're going to just do incremental change and just, you know, just leave it at that. If I put your pieces together, there's a beautiful arc. You know, you, you look much wider than before. You then redefine the, the lens focus, which is no longer going to be on the physician and the care delivery system, but on the patient, the consumer. Having done that, you better rebrand what you're providing, the value you're creating, which should now be much greater. You then have to redesign your systems, measure your results. As you say, invariably learn that reorganization is essential, but that's not enough until you redirect your strategy, tactics, and resources. I think it's a brilliant way to think about transformation. And I love in your book how you talk about the fact that Six Sigma or lean approaches can make incremental improvements, but they can't fundamentally transform healthcare. And as you've described over your 30-year experience, you've seen the failures and come to the conclusion, like I have, that radical change, transformational change is required. Let's look at primary care, the area that I believe in healthcare today is suffering the most and needs the greatest uptake in change and the greatest uptake in improvement. First of all, Robbie, you did a, a phenomenal job of going through that whole reframe roadmap, and it was really quite eloquent, so thank you. So primary care, I, th I think it's difficult to argue against the fact that primary care in our country over the past couple of decades has been decimated. Some people say it's been destroyed, ruined, uh, whatnot. But again, if you look at the facts, uh, very, very few people are going into, you know, medical students and residents are going into general primary care, internal medicine or family medicine. Those that are in it are uh, incredibly burnt out. One out of every two primary care physicians is burnt out. Very few primary care physicians would recommend uh, that young physicians or for, for that matter, their children go into primary care. And, and yet, on the other hand, on the other hand, we also know that the literature tells us that primary care is the most essential aspect of any healthcare system, right? The more primary care you have in an area, the better health outcomes you have. So we've got this insane equation going on here. The most important aspect or one of the most important aspects of any healthcare system has been decimated and is dying on the vine. And it's, it's a recipe for disaster. And costs will go up, outcomes will go down, and I think we're, we're beginning to see this. In fact, there was just a recent article that demonstrated that less than 5% of all Medicare payment is spent on primary care. So the issue here, and we've been trying to fix it, let's also add that, for at least two or three decades, different formulations of primary care, the patient-centered medical home and advanced medical homes and all kinds of iterations. And as you pointed out before, we've been doing Toyota production system, uh, work on it, process improvement, et cetera, Six Sigma. Nothing's really worked no matter what we throw at it. Uh, it could be payment reform, still does not solve the problem. And so I, I fundamentally think we have to reframe and reorient primary care. And if we take a consumerist marketing mindset, the first thing you'll notice, if you and I were, let's say we, we go into business together and we are now, you know, a marketing mindset LLC, Reframe Roadmap LLC, and, and we're called in to fix primary care. You know, let's say uh, Alex Azar or someone at the federal level says, you know, we need you guys to fix it. What do you think's going on here? The first thing we would say, we would look at primary care and say, oh my God, this branding is ridiculous. How do you take one shop, you know, one 
primary care provider with a staff in an office, how are they ex- supposed to treat everything from heart attacks to strokes to headaches and heartburn? In no other industry would you have such divergent needs, such different customer segments coming into one lane and expect that one lane to treat them all. The reorientation, the redefining, and the rebranding here is really all about segmentation, which is a core, core marketing principle, again, used in every other industry except for healthcare in this way. And so what we would recommend is if we had our marketing mindset hats on, we would recommend that we would segment primary care into at least five or six different segments. For example, there is a a tremendous need right now for complex chronic care brand. We need a shop that takes care of the older and very, very sick population. You can't just throw them into, into the same lane as you throw everyone else. We probably would want a urgent care on demand care brand where, you know, again, I don't want to go wait, you know, for two weeks or three weeks to see a doctor, sit in the waiting room for hours, be behind people who are very sick or taking up a long time. This is, I want something nearby me. I want to go in and out. So there's a need for that. There's probably a need for some condition-specific brands. And then we would design each one of those brands specifically for that customer segment and and that customer need. Uh, We would have very, very different results. And again, think about it this way. If I'm in a complex chronic care brand, okay, and I'm taking care of older, very, very sick people, often on you know, 10, 15, 20 different medications, often homebound, the results I'm going to go for for that are very different for the results for a 30-year-old who comes in because they've had a laceration and need me to sew it up. Completely different uh, key performance indicators. And, and again, if you think about the roadmap, I'm going to be organized differently. There comes the reorganization step. Uh, the results I mentioned are differently. And I'm going to redirect my strategies, tactics, and resources completely differently. And yet we've taken all these brands, probably a dozen different brands, mashed them all together in this mess that we call primary care medical home. And we expect these poor providers and staff to dance to all these different performance indicators. It's, it's just when you think about it and step back and you have this marketing mindset and this, this customer-oriented segmented approach, it's almost insane that we've allowed this to happen. It's so understandable why people don't want to go into this profession and why they burn out in it. Because it's it just makes no sense. It makes no business sense. I don't think it makes clinical sense. And it clearly doesn't make sense from a consumer uh, market perspective. You alluded to publications recently on the important role the primary care has relative to health and longevity. There's a Forbes piece I wrote about a week ago where I talk about the fact that the same study came out 25 years ago showing the same conclusion that primary care is at least five times more powerful than specialty care at accomplishing the goals that we would want, as you say, from a consumer perspective, at least judged by overall health and wellness, as well as longevity. And yet, as you've also pointed out, the Medicare spend is less than 5%. In fact, in the article, is maybe as low as 2%, but somewhere between 2 and 5%. How do you see, using this framework, American healthcare making the change to do what I believe is necessary, greater investment in primary care with the return being obvious, but how do you see this transition happening? Is it going to be disruptive? Is it going to be incremental? What do you see the nation doing 
to address the shortcomings of today? Wow, that's a great, great question. And by the way, I do, I do so appreciate your historic context, how you bring some of the recent publications and point out some of the previous ones as well. It just seems so obvious and so evidence-based. I mean, this is the reason I, you know, I wrote the book. I had this knowledge in my head, but I needed to put it down. And, and one of the reasons I wanted to outline it in this way, this roadmap, and, and put it in a book was I wanted people to be able to pick it up and actually see, oh my God, this is true. This is happening. And the moment you you see it, you begin to see every day something happens, every week, every month. And it's almost like, yes, it, we are going down the roadmap. This is where the market is heading. And, and I'm hoping that it will be a tool that people will use. So I think that whether it be hospital systems, integrated delivery networks, payer systems, uh, state uh, programs, healthcare programs, or the federal government, I think, or the new entrants into the market, uh, again, whether these entrants be players like the large uh, pharmacy chains like the CVS and Walgreens, or now new entrants into healthcare like Walmarts or the Amazons. I think that all of these players and all of these stakeholders are actually moving in this direction, um, and, and we're beginning to see it. I mean, organizations like Intermountain have very much segmented and reorganized themselves around the customer. We're seeing, you know, again, forward-thinking places like Kaiser and and, and Geisinger doing it. It's not that we're gonna that we're gonna see this happening. It's it's already happening right now. Um, I, I just again, I'm just pointing out what to me is the obvious in the market. And I'm hoping that by making it more obvious and by also uh, providing a, a roadmap and a guideline and some suggested advice around it, that people will be, it, it'll assist people and it will also accelerate the, the transition. Because I think the in-between phase right now is the most painful phase. I think we need to get through this in-between phase quickly. Two last questions for you, Zev, and then I'm gonna turn it over to Jeremy. First one is for the physicians in the community who are listening into this podcast, how much time do they have before, if they don't change, they're going to pay a major price? Wow, that's a great, great question. Uh, I'm actually interested in what you think. Um, you have such a great purview on the market. I, I think that, well, first of all, let me just say that I obviously wrote this uh, book. Uh, it is for the public. It is for patients uh, primarily. But I will tell you, I wrote it for providers as well. Um, providers are dying on the vine. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, they're burnt out. I see this firsthand. I've been dealing with this burnout issue for two decades. I've actually done research on it in the past. And I, I believe this is the right thing for providers as much as it's the right thing for patients. I think this will, will tremendously help uh, providers. And so, so having said that, I think from a, just a personal perspective, from a pre professional perspective, this is the right thing to do and to do it quickly. I would say in terms of the competitive disadvantage, the longer you wait, the greater will be your, dis your competitive disadvantage. And while it seems like you might have, and, and of course it depends, it depends on your local market, where the market is in terms of the transition. But I would suggest the market is moving no matter where you are there are very, very few legacy markets. I think the market is moving across the country very, very quickly. I think we're in a transit, uh, what I would call it a, a phase change. We're, we're sort of in that phase where, you know, when water is, is frozen, it's still water, and then it just takes a crystal and the whole thing turns to ice rapidly. I think we're in that sort of phase change in healthcare. The economy can't bear the burden of the cost of healthcare and the inefficiencies and ineffectiveness anymore. Employers are just not going to stand for it. 
payers are not going to stand for it. And so I think if you if you don't pick up this book and if you don't see the reality in front of you and you put it down for another year or two, I think you're going to be at a major, major competitive disadvantage because the thing to remember is, you know, if you're coming in as a new entrant, it's one thing, but if you've got a legacy system, and especially if you're a large legacy system, it takes a long time to turn those ships. Uh, even if you're a provider group, uh, change does not happen quickly. You have to deconstruct and reconstruct, and that could take anywhere from two to four years at least. So I think, uh, I mean, my suggestion is we start to move the legacy systems, whether it be provider groups or payers or hospital systems, move quickly on this because it's going to take some time. And the new entrants are, are already way ahead of us in, in many ways. Final question. What does your seven-step process teach us about burnout and teach us about overcoming and reversing and solving this terrible challenge to American physicians? On a very, very basic level, this entire reframe roadmap is, is really that my purpose is to humanize healthcare, humanize it for, uh, uh, for the people who serve within the system and humanize it for those who are served by the system. You know, the, the fundamental consumer marketing mindset, it, it is all about listening to people, listening to your external customers, listening to your internal customers. Branding is really an existential exercise. It, it, you know, what do people need? What problems are they facing? What challenges? What are their frustrations? And why I found this orientation, this marketing mindset, consumers mindset, so critically important for healthcare is we need the science and the art and the technology of consumerism to really understand what people need, whether those people are called patients or whether those people are called providers. And if we adopt this and, and deploy it well, I think we will liberate the tremendous value that is currently locked up in the system. I think we're going to humanize healthcare for providers and patients. And I believe that we will save lives in the process. In, uh, in one of your recent podcast episodes, I heard you having a conversation with uh, one of your guests about the difference between you know healthcare and health. Can you talk about the importance of um, understanding wellness and nutrition as part of the healthcare of the future. The, and this is talked about, I think a lot, um, but to the point of uh, what we were talking about before, uh, you know, getting down to, to brass tacks, getting down to redesigning and, and for different results and reorganizing and redirecting strategies, tactics and resources, that, that's really the important part about this. So we have been across the board, very, very focused on health care. That is on, uh, we get paid to do things. We get paid for visits. And in fact, I think this has really been one of the things that's decimated primary care. Healthcare is not about visits. Okay. It's, and yet that's, that's, you know, that's how doctors get paid. You know, you, you have to go see a doctor. Uh, they get a certain number of RVUs. And that's how how they make their money. Um, and you know the same is true for procedurally oriented and surgically oriented uh, providers. they They get paid for doing things. That's health care. Paying for health is different. Paying for health is looking at outcomes of health. 
Uh, you know, was the blood pressure controlled? Was the diabetes controlled? Did the patient, um, uh, was the infection controlled? Did the patient after a surgical procedure or some other procedure, did, did they get the results they wanted, how they would define health? With the marketing mindset and the shift towards more consumerism in healthcare, how do you think conversations around end-of-life care should change? Where, where do you think conversations around end-of-life care should go? Well, I think we have, we have a long, long way to go to even begin having those conversations. And I, you know, I, I can tell you on a, on a very personal level, um, as, a, as a family member, of, uh, having gone through this, that um, the system just does a, a terrible job of preparing people for end-of-life and um, you know, I don't, I don't want to get into the politics of it, but it's really quite sad. And and this is again, you know, we could put this in in the consumerist mindset. And by what I mean by that is a humanist mindset. Um, you know, as as people get sicker and and you know, end of life is near. I mean, this is a reality, and uh, and we could either ignore it and continue to do again what what we've been doing in the medical mindset, which is just treat, treat, treat. You know, clinical care, technologic care, you know, invasive care, caustic care, and again, thank God for that care. Thank God that we have such such wonderful medicine. But at the same time, you know, what happened to the humanity? What happened to sitting down and talking to people, and and having an honest, open discussion? And and that takes time, and and time is money. I, I had a friend who works at a factory back home, a friend of mine from high school, didn't go to college or whatever, but he was listening to my podcast and he was like, you guys talk about physician burnout all the time. And he was like, I've worked at a factory, you know, for 10 years, I'm burned out. All my coworkers are burned out. Everybody I know is burned out, you know, everywhere is cutting costs and, and doing less of man hours. What makes physician burnout different? And I'm curious about what, what you would say to that to people who don't have that background in healthcare? What a, that's a phenomenal question. And um, I, I think we could do a whole uh, broadcast just on that question. Let me say this. First of all, the issue of burnout in healthcare is incredibly serious. It's not just important. First of all, it's epidemic. Again, when one out of two, one out of one out of every two doctors is burnt out. That means they're emotionally exhausted. They feel depersonalized. They, they're depressed. They're demoralized. That's a public health issue. You, you don't want your doctor feeling that way because they're not going to be on top of their game. You know, who wants a surgeon standing over them who's depressed and demoralized? I don't. So, so it, it is different in that regard. Um, uh, and so that's number one. Number two, it's, it's also, you know, again, this is a manpower issue. If, if, if the primary care doctors and specialists and other doctors are, are falling by the wayside, how are you ever going to get in to see a doctor, right? I mean, it's just it, it's a, it's an access issue as well. So it is it is a little bit different. Having said that, let me just say that, uh, and I want to I want actually you're, I want to I want to say to your friend, you're absolutely right. The issue of of burnout, of despair, of demoralization is actually a epidemic in our country. The the suicide rates in our country have increased dramatically in the last few years. And 
Um, I think it's something like every 12 minutes, an American commits suicide now. These are of unprecedented proportion. And so I, I think what your friend is describing is reality and, and experiencing reality and, and, and sharing that reality. And, and I actually would go back to the fact this kind of goes back to this whole issue of why do we have to reframe healthcare? Why do we have to reorient healthcare? Well, what we've been doing today, we've been pouring more and more money, nearly 20% of the U.S. gross domestic product. Every, I mean, healthcare costs go up, you know, three, four, five, six, seven percent every year. More, and the technology gets better, the science gets better, and yet the health gets worse. We are the only developed nation, and Robbie knows this stat better than I do. We are the only developed nation in the world in which um, life expectancy is going down. Okay, it's gone down in the U.S. in the last two years. Suicide rates are going up. And it's not the older people who are committing suicide. It's, it's people in their 30s, 40s, and 50s. We have a crisis in this country, okay? A health crisis. Costs going up, and yet health getting worse. And so I think your friend is absolutely right. I think we have to solve for that problem. And, and the reframe I talk about actually in my book, in addition to a consumer-oriented marketing mindset reframe, which is, is fundamental, we also have to look at what they call the social determinants of health. Because we have to begin to realize that healthcare is mostly not about clinical medical care. It's about the social determinants of health. Do you have education? You know, do you have a meaningful job? Are you able to have safe housing? Do you have a, 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 a robust community around you to give your life meaning and purpose as well? Can you get around? Do you have convenient, accessible, affordable transportation? These are fundamental health needs. And what we're, what we're finding in the literature, again, Robbie could speak to this literature as, as well, if not better than I can, the literature is telling us that 60 to 70% of all health outcomes are due to these social determinants of health. And so we have to reorient our healthcare system to actually address those needs and to start to redirect strategies, tactics, and resources. And so my reframe roadmap actually includes the reorientation of the social determinants of health. So I think we have to address both. We have to take care of the providers because we, we must, um, if we want uh, the clinical medical care to continue and to be safe, and we also have to address the despair that is out there in our society at large. So, Zev, you're a futurist. Um, you have your, your finger on the pulse of what's going on better than just about anybody. You've mentioned how many physicians have actually recommended that their children not become physicians. Are you recommending to young people, your children, friends with children, that they pursue medicine as a career going forward? Or are you more pessimistic that it's not going to be as good as it has been in the past? Uh, that is a, a very, very good question. And um, my answer is unabashedly, uh, I would recommend uh, healthcare. I would recommend medicine. I, um, I feel incredibly enthusiastic and energized right now. In fact, I, I have never felt more excited and enthusiastic about healthcare than I do right now today. In fact, I mean, I have no wishes and I have no regrets, but I wish I could be earlier on in my career because I think, I think we've gone through some very, very rough times in healthcare uh, over the past two or three decades. I, I think, and we could go into lots of detail about that, but but I think we are emerging into a um, into a renaissance of healthcare delivery, and it's part of it is the medical science, 
uh, and technology. Part of it is digital technology, you know, artificial intelligence, predictive analytics. And then, you know, again, those are just tools. But if you couple that with what I've been talking about, this reframe, reorientation of healthcare with a consumerist marketing mindset, which again, it's happening. I'm not making it up. It's not a theory. It's not a futurist prediction. This is happening. I'm just, I'm just explaining to, to people what the reality is and giving, giving a conceptual frame and language to understand it as well as a roadmap to help us get there. But we are going there. So in talking with you and reading your book, uh, you seem very optimistic about the future of American medicine. But a lot of people are telling us through the podcast and other channels that they're very pessimistic about the future of American medicine, that things are getting worse. They can't afford the care they need. They can't get through the insurance system. Their deductibles are skyrocketing. They have trouble finding a good primary care physician. When will American healthcare get better? And when do you think patients and consumers will actually be able to see and feel the change? First of all, I appreciate the uh, pointing out some of the challenges that we have today, and they're very, very serious challenges. And and I don't want in in any way to make less of them. Uh, and it, in fact, is you know this is the set of issues that I've devoted my entire career to, and uh, work on every single day. And it's the reason I spent the last two years of my life writing a book to really accelerate the transition and transformation of American American healthcare to deal with some of these very, very real issues and, and uh, you know, whether it's affordability, whether it's, you know, uh, access, whether it's uh, uh, the issue of the opaque uh, quality of healthcare to make it more transparent and, and make it more humane and humanistic. So, so absolute realities that are there today, I, I think, uh, again, we're seeing the market shifting dramatically. We're seeing new entrants coming in in droves. Uh, we're seeing the benefit of the new technologies. We're seeing the market. Again, this is the reframe. This is the orient reorientation. We're seeing industries bring in their technologies and their capabilities. So although in the past, and again, maybe it is an optimistic perspective, but I, I, I think it's actually realistic. In the past, change in healthcare has been incredibly slow, uh, you know, on the order of decades. I think what we're going to see now is disruption occurring on the order of months to years. And I think it's going to continue to get faster and faster and faster. Well, Zev, we've taken up a lot of your time today. Uh, would you like to offer a closing statement for both healthcare industry leaders as well as patients? And for people that want more information, can you tell them a little bit about your book, your podcast, and how to follow you on social media? Well, thanks for asking. So the, the book is called Reframing Healthcare, uh, a Roadmap for Creating Disruptive Change. It's on Amazon. And so anyone can just go online, go to Amazon, type in my name, Zev Newworth, or Reframing Healthcare, and the book will pop up. And, and again, I wrote the book. It is a a detailed outline of these seven steps that we've covered. And I think it would help uh, anyone from CEOs to boards, to senior leadership teams, to leaders across the board, whether you're a payer or policymaker or a new entrant. I, so I, I'm hoping that people avail themselves of that. I do have a website, www.reframehealthcare.org. And in it, I go into a little bit of explanation uh, on the roadmap, but uh, that's a way to for folks to uh, contact me Zev, I can't promise you that our nation will adopt the approach you recommend in your superb book, Reframing Healthcare, Roadmap for Creating Disruptive Change. 
But for any listener who thought that only incremental progress was possible, you've opened his or her eyes to an approach for true transformation on behalf of all of America, doctors, patients, nurses, everyone who's involved in the healthcare system. Thank you. Well, thank you, Robbie. And thanks, Jeremy. We're going to wrap up today's episode with something new. I recently read and reviewed four excellent books, including Zev's. I then asked subscribers to my newsletter, Monthly Musings on American Healthcare, to share their favorite medical books. With dozens of suggestions, let's take a look at three of the books that I think the listeners of this podcast will appreciate. Several newsletter subscribers recommended Deep Medicine, the latest release from Eric Topol, a guest of this podcast back in season one. Henry Sock said the book offers a great overview of AI and machine learning, along with a balanced conversation about pros and cons of their application in medicine. Anne Nooney recommended The End of Alzheimer's by Dale Bredesen. The book has her contemplating how to best change the model of randomized controlled trials as we enter the era of personalized medicine. Finally, Jeff Smith suggests The Heart Healers by James Forrester, a cardiologist who offers a detailed history of heart surgery. Jeffrey says the book made him think about how to find better, simpler, and more convenient ways to solve clinical problems. Jeremy, as host of the popular New Books in Medicine podcast, is there a book you would recommend our listeners check out? Absolutely. Robbie, as you know, I'm a huge history buff, and one of my favorite books of the last couple of years has been The Butchering Art, Joseph Lister's quest to transform the grisly world of Victorian medicine by Dr. Lindsay Fitzharris. Uh, this book offers a look into the time before antiseptic or anesthesia when the safest surgeries were performed in the home due to the amount of disease and risk of infection in hospitals. Joseph Lister was a fascinating figure. He's one of the few people in medical history for whom there was a clear before and after. Thanks to his work, medicine learned that germs were the source of infections and could be countered by cleansing hands and instruments prior to operating. Uh, Dr. Fitzharris is actually going to be the next guest on the Fixing Healthcare podcast. She is a recognized academic expert. Uh, she's been featured on the Joe Rogan Experience podcast, the New Books in Medicine podcast, and many more. Uh, we will be discussing the history of medicine and the important lessons that can be learned from the past. Listeners won't want to miss it. Robbie, I also read your newest Forbes column, which compares the books Deep Medicine and The Butchering Art. I thought it made a fascinating point about what hasn't changed in American medicine. Where can readers learn more? Listeners can find the column on Forbes.com. I also included a link to the article in my newsletter, which offers a monthly roundup of the relevant healthcare news, opinion, and research. Listeners can subscribe for free on my website, robertperlmd.com. Thanks to everyone who shared their book recommendations with Robbie. Next month, we'll read listener ideas and suggestions from the Survey to Fix American Healthcare on this show. As always, we invite you to provide your ideas for fixing healthcare at robertperlmd.com. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Have a great day. Mm -hmm.